So, yep, we're in the last two verses of 1 John, and tonight I will do one more on 1 John. It's going to be on the grand themes of the book. We've gone through and we've looked at a verse at a time, and we've studied that, and we've taken things in John's past to help illustrate and give us a fuller picture as we've gone through the text through 1 John. It's not even that big of a book, but boy, it is a big, weighty book. So we went a verse at a time. Now I want to kind of pull back and use a wide-angle lens and see differently. Sometimes, you know, you're going through and you look at the details of things and you miss the big picture. And there's also a big picture and there are those little things. And so this book is a supernatural book. John has written it. And John something else. And so there's, I'll tell you a brief little thing. And so we're not going to be able to go in great detail tonight. I'm just going to lay them out for you. And we'll look at some detail on some, but then hopefully whet your appetite that you go back and study more. There are seven contrasts in, in the book of 1 John. We'll look at though there are seven tests in the book of 1 John. There are seven birthmarks of a true believer in the book of 1 John. There are seven reasons for why he wrote the book that are in the book of 1 John. And there are seven proofs of genuineness, if you're a real Christian, that are in the book of 1 John. And there's a six in there too. John is known for his sevens. Again, it's called the haptatic structure. It's one of those things that you see and you pick up in 1 John. You pick it up in the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. You have to be dense not to see it. In Revelation 7, this, 7, that even tells you. Let alone there's the seven other things that are listed and so that are there. But then there's a six in here that we'll look at tonight too that uh, falls short. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion. Seven days in a week, and then you start a new week. You know, you have that. Um, eight is the octave. You know, where it changes the octave, and so we uh, have one that is six that is not complete. That we'll talk about tonight too. And so again, we're going to go through that briefly. That's a lot uh, to kind of cover, but we'll look at it, kind of give you a basic overview of it, and then you can go back and study it in depth. For this morning's text, before we get to First John, turn with me to Revelation 19, <clears throat> near the very end of the book. Revelation 19, as I was thinking this morning about John and just how we've got to know him, you know, through this book too, you know, he's taken the time to tell us about Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, but we've taken time to kind of study him a little bit too. Who is this guy who wrote this book? He was given so much to see when you think about it, man, out of all the people in the world, you know, I think of, a lot of times I think of Paul, Man, what, what a man, you know, what a disciple of Jesus Christ. But man, what responsibility was on John? There were many that gave their life, and there were many that stood up and, and, and burned bright and then burned out. You know, Peter was ahead. You know, his um, Jesus' half-brother James was a leader of the church, you know, died early on, all these martyrs that went on. And there's John who endured and persevered and lived to an old age. He was called to follow Jesus very early. He was there when John the Baptist was preaching when he announced Jesus and said, this is the one who shoot latchet, and then he followed him, followed after him. So he's there very early on in Jesus' public ministry. He witnessed Jesus throughout his whole public ministry, and he was one of the inner group. He was part of the twelve, but he was part of that inner group that always went and did the extra little things with Jesus. He was always called to that. So he was faithful, he was loyal, he was true, he was close to Jesus Christ. He saw miracles to the point where he says, I couldn't even tell you all the miracles I saw. He heard his teaching. 
And we know that you know, from the four accounts of the gospel, there's times that Jesus said the same message, you know, and he'd go to a different place. He was like an itinerant preacher that way. And so he got to hear it differently, and it's recorded differently. And he got to hear how he presented to the crowds and have it soaked in, and he would get the lessons afterwards when they're like, Teacher, why are you teaching a parable? What does this parable mean? I don't understand it. He got all those insights as well. He watched him die. Yeah, they all fled in the garden, but, but John ran back. And John was there, and he was with Mary, and he stood with them, and he watched the mother as she suffered, as she watched her son suffer. Jesus spoke to him off the cross about caring for his mother. He was the one who ran to the empty tomb and beat Peter. He got there first, but Peter ran on in. (laughs) He looked in, so he ran there first. He was there, saw the empty tomb, eyewitness to the empty tomb, saw the linen clothes in a pile off to the side. He said he took all these things and he thought about it. He saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. All the appearances, he, he was there. And, and, and he, you know, there's, all the ones with the disciples were gathered, he, he was there. He didn't miss any. He watched him the last time they met together as Jesus flew up into the crowds and ascended into heaven and promised to come back again. The things this man witnessed, it's crazy. He was a leader at the birth of the church. He was imprisoned for it, his following and his belief in Jesus Christ, suffered for it. He was taken to the future and shown the end of the world and how things are going to go in the beginning of eternity. He was taken through the tribulation, the most, most terrible seven years on earth that we've never had anything like it and there'll never be anything like it. He, he'd go and he, and he saw that. He saw Armageddon. He sees the millennial reign of Christ where Mortals and immortals reign with Jesus Christ on the earth. He sees the last battle, the battle of Gog and Magog. He sees heaven and earth destroyed, and a new heaven, a new earth created, and the beginning of eternity, and the last words that are told to him to speak to us, to say, come, you know, and join, and, and, and be a part of this. He sees all that. What a life. You know, then he gets to go back and live all this. You know, he's like, he saw it in the future, and then he gets to go live it. Talk about being entrusted with a message. Man, John. Revelation 19, John records the end of our economy. That is the best way I can put it. The end of our age. The world and life as you and I know it. There's been different ones. There's been different, it's been called dispensations. You could call it eras. You can call it economies. You can call it different worlds. You know, there's, it was a different world that Adam and Eve lived in than you and I lived in. It was a different world that Noah lived on the backside of the flood versus the after the flood. We only know the world after the flood. That's different. There's a different world when Christ was alive on the earth. And there's been a different world since Jesus Christ has been resurrected and how the world moves and operates and how it goes on. That's the world that you and I know. And there'll be a time when that comes to an end, when Christ comes and he establishes the kingdom. But at the end of our time, the end of our world, is the seven-year tribulation that ends with Armageddon. He's going to record through the book of Revelation the... Uh, life and how hard it is and how difficult it is and how all that goes on. You know, in the future, you know, after the tribulation, it's the, the, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ himself rules and reigns on the earth, where you have mortals and immortals living side by side on the earth, uh, where us now, we will all be immortals, we'll be changed at that point in time, yet there'll be people on the earth who 
who have children, you know, and who live and, and, could, and can die. And so you have mortals and immortals and angels and, and Jesus Christ. What a time on earth that's going to be. That's going to be kind of crazy. I look forward to that time for a thousand years with him. He records that time. So that's a different economy. But ours ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he comes back, the second advent, where he comes back to the earth. A time he's promised, a time that he tells us every time we do the communion that we are to be reminded that he's going to come again. We do this to show that he's made that promise and that he will come again. A time we are to anticipate, a time that we're to be watching for, a time that we're to be looking for. John has just seen the violence and the death of the seven-year judgment and tribulation that the world has gone through. John saw a man who rose up off the earth and claimed to be Christ, claimed to be God, and demanded worship. He saw a false religious system that popped up around him where this false prophet did these lying signs and wonders to deceive people to worship this man who claimed to be Jesus Christ or claimed to be Messiah for the earth. He saw them when they made a mark that people had to take upon them to show their loyalty to the beast so they might be able to restrict them even from buying and selling unless you were in this cult. He saw them take an inanimate object, form it into the image of the beast, and make it come alive to where people were forced and demanded to worship it. Forced worship. Saints and believers, he watched them as they were killed, beheaded, martyred them for the cause of Jesus Christ, refusing to bow, refusing to give in, refusing to take the mark, and it cost them their lives. He, he watches all this. Such confusion on the earth, such lies. People who look and see, well, I saw a miracle, it must be God. And they believed, and, and not trusting in the word of God, not trusting what God has said, not trusting that he's told us things, these things in advance and not to do it. And yet they run to it because it's there, and it's easy, and it's convenient, and it's how I buy it, it's how I get food, and I can see this guy, and it's here and now. And, and they, then they buy the lie, and they swallow it, hook, line, and seeker. And they are deceived, so it's a time of confusion, a time of lies, a time where Jesus pretty much told us, do not be deceived, you know, and he warns us again and again not to be deceived during these things that are coming. Fake, fake deities, fake truths that are told as truth that are lies, deceptions that are perpetrated upon the earth, lying signs and wonders is how he puts it, deceiving and pulling people farther and farther away from God. We have to be on our toes. They have to be on their toes. But when we get to Revelation 19, the truth is revealed. It is made clear who is true and who is a liar. Verse 11 starts out, And I saw heaven open. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Faithful, he keeps his word. It's been a long time coming. Uh, Betty went home two weeks ago, and she was often like, when's he coming? I'm ready for him to come. Can't wait for him to get here. You know, she was like, boy, it seems like now would be a good time. But he's not, he's not, he's not late. He comes just in time. He comes at the right time. He's faithful. He keeps his word. I said I would, I will. And he comes. He's true, faithful and true. True, he's the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth embodied in Jesus Christ. He's the righteous judge. He's coming to make war on the earth, to make them pay for the wickedness and the deception that they perpetrated upon the earth. And he's coming to show them the light and teach them what is truth. And he's going to judge them and hold them accountable for it. Verse 12, his eyes was as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He is unique. He is other. There was none like him. 
There's no one like him. He has power. He has authority. He has the crown of crowns. He wears all the crowns because he deserves all power and authority and, and worship and honor laid upon him. Verse 13, and he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. John's used that code for us before. The Gospel of John starts out with it, with it right? It's like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. It's Jesus Christ. This is, this is Him. This is the description of Him. So this is Jesus Christ that He's talking about. This is Jesus who is the judge. This is Jesus who is the faithful and true. This is Jesus' second coming, coming back to the earth. Verse 14 says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of, the, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it that he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Is yours in all caps? Mine is. That's who he is. He is King of kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is revealing to the world who He is. There's no more, who do you say that Christ is? He is now coming and putting, putting an exclamation point on the end of, I am who I said I am. I am who I have told you I would be. I am who the Word has said I am. I am who as John has testified. I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords and I'm coming and there's not this false little upstart. No more fake claims. No more lies perpetrated upon the earth. No more pretenders to the throne. No, he comes and makes it clear. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And he comes and he judges the earth. This is the king of kings and Lord of lords. There is no other. And his name is Jesus. The true God. The truth. The word of God made flesh. There's no one like him. He is over all. He is above all. No one can stand in His presence. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when He comes before Him in His power and His might and His majesty. They have to drop to their knees. They have to bend to His superiorness. He is the superior. There is no one else. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is powerful. John witnessed this. John saw this and he recorded it for us. I think it helps inform us to these last two verses. If you go to 1 John, chapter 5. 1 John, chapter 5. In verse 20 it says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Starts out saying, and we know that the Son of God has come. We know Him and we know that He has come. John has been testifying to that fact in everything that he's written. In the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and in the book of Revelation here. In this book, he's telling us, this is Jesus Christ. This is who he is. He is fulfilling the scripture. He is who he says he is. In the Gospel of John, he uses seven, seven miracles, seven titles, seven I am, seven things, showing that he is, he is the complete one. He is the one who comes and fulfills the scripture. This is him. And we know that he came. We know that he came. We live in a day and age where we know that he came. 
We live in a changed world because he came. The world was operating and going down a certain way. We're studying that on Wednesday nights, how it was with kings, anticipating, looking forward to the one who would come. But then when the king comes, the world is different. It's a change. It is a different time. You know, the church is what we have all these different things. But the world is still talking about him coming. His birth was announced by a star. How many times does that happen? Right? You know, kings show up, magi from around the world bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, you know, delivering it to him. The king of Israel at that time, Herod, the Herod over the, over the uh, Israel, wants to have him killed because he knows and, and he has the scriptures and they have him searched. Like, yes, this is him. And so he seeks to kill him. Kings feared him. They knew he was there. They knew he was coming. The history books record it. Not only what uh, we have in the Bible, but other books that talk about the star. And other books that talk about his death and the darkness that came over the earth. And other history books that record the things that he did about Jesus and the impact that he had. And how Christianity has changed the world and spreads across Europe and spreads around the world. And it's influenced every culture around the world. He has changed the world because he came. He split time in two from A.D. to B.C. B.C. to A.D., right? You know, before he came and after he came. It was there, and the world's trying to change it back by changing it to B.C.E. and, they, and before the Common Era. And, and I forget what they say for the other A.D., but, but they, they, they're trying to change it all. It's like trying to change time, but he split it, split it right in half. There was a time before he came, there's a time after he came, and the world is different. The world knows it. We know it. He changed it. It's not been the same since he's been here. We talk about him, we preach about him, we send missionaries about him, we have the Bible, the most um, printed book in the world, translated in the most languages than anything else in the world, talking about him, we stand up and we talk about him, we have recordings and books and everything else about him. Jesus Christ has changed the world. We know he was here, we know he was there, we know the stories, we know how it goes. And John is giving us more understanding. He's been teaching us and describing to us who he is. And if you are saved, if you've repented of Jesus Christ and you've trusted Him as your Savior, you're given the Holy Spirit who helps you to have understanding. That now takes this book that seemed like gobbledygook and it was written in the old language and it's hard to understand and perceive to now begin to make sense. And it begins to speak to you. You see it as a love letter written from God you know, to talk to you, to teach you, to instruct you, to guide you on how life should go and how you should be going, to tell you who He is and He describes Himself and He tells you what He is like and who He is doing and what you should be like and, and that we should know the real one so that the counterfeit is clear and obvious to us. And He begins to tell us all these things so that we have discernment. It's a gift of, of salvation. You begin to discern truth from a lie. You begin to weigh things out and say, I don't know about that. You know, and I know that this is true. And begin to study the word. And the more we study it, the more we have discernment to be able to separate the truth from the lie. And so we read it. And we are comprehend it. And we are compelled by it to change our life. And it changes us and transforms us. Because he came. He gave us his word. And he's also given us the Holy Spirit to teach us, to instruct us, to guide us. You know, to, to tell us, uh, to inform our conscience, don't do that. You might not understand everything about it, but man, it troubles my spirit. And boy, I shouldn't do that, or I should be doing this. And it gives us a sensitivity and a love one towards another that is there. He's also told us to study and to know him and to know that he is true. Read his word, know who he is, study him in the Gospels, study him as he's described in the epistles, see him when he comes back as conquering king, understand and know him and trust him and make him Lord of your life. He's told us again and again and again so that we will know these things. That's our memory verse. So that we will know that we have salvation. Hmm. This is uh, November, right? Mom's not here this morning, but she sent out a little email thing, and, and each day she had something that we are to know. November, K-N-O, to play on the word. We are to know that Jesus is the Christ. We are to know that it is true. 
We are to know that all of it is true and that all of it matters and that we are in Him. That's what verse 20 says. And we are to know the Son of God has come and He hath given us an understanding that we may know that it is true. We are to know these things. And we are in Him that is true, even His Son, Jesus Christ. We are in Him. If you've repented and trusted Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ. He is the overcomer. You become an overcomer because you are in Him. We are in Christ. We are in His fellowship. We are in His body. Just like in a marriage, a husband and wife, the two become one. You know, we become one. We are, we are called the bride of Christ. You know, so we are locked in eternally with Him. Uh, so when we repent and trust in Him, we are in Christ. <clears throat> the best example of it is the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the ark, Noah's ark. Not Ark of the Covenant, Noah's Ark. One of the animals in it, Noah in it. So we are in Him. And if we are in Him, He will safely deliver us through the judgment of death that comes. You know, the, the, the judgment that comes on the earth. If we are in Him, we are safe and secure. And He'll deliver us safely on the other side to take us into eternity. Where we can live forever with Him. If we are in Him, if we are in that Ark. And just like the Ark of Noah, we are safe inside. The animals and Noah and his family, they were safe inside the ark. And as death rained down on the world, represented by water then, water, flood, judgments, the buffeting, the rocketing as it scratched against things, as things outside tried to get in and clawed against it as it bumped off mountaintops and trees and, and took it all. The ark took all those blows. The ark took all the judgment, all the waves that came and rocked against it. It took it all. They were safe inside. Christ took all of our judgment. It's poured out on Him on the cross, and we are safely in Him. He bears the bruises. He bears the marks. He bears the wrath of God thrown upon Him so that we are safe inside because we are in Him. Christ takes it all. The ark is a picture of it all. And again, He safely delivers us. So He's the ark if we are in Him. And it says, we know that we are in Him if you've repented and trusted Him. And His Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are in Him. Like I said, He's given us seven tests, seven birthmarks, seven traits of a believer. We'll go over them again tonight if you'd like to come back for that. It's all about Jesus. It even ends at that. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He names Him for us. He tells us who it is. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Uh, that's who, what Christ means. The Christos. It's all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. This book of 1 John is all about Jesus. <clears throat> so that we can know. These things are written that you may know. That you may know that you have everlasting life. Our memory verse. That you may know it. Not that you hope, that you think, that you wish, that you have a good warm feeling in your gut. No, that you know it. That you know it intellectually. You know it because you've studied it. You know it because you know that you're a wretch. And that He is perfect. And that you need a Savior. That Jesus is the Savior. That you cried out for that Savior. That you put your faith and trust in Him. And that Jesus Christ has taken that wrath for you. And that death has been passed from you unto Him. And you've been given life. We know these things because we've studied the Word. So there will be no more doubters, but we will be knowers, that we'll have confidence, that we'll have a conviction to live for Him. This Jesus. This last part of the verse, it says this about Him. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God and eternal life. No more Gnostic version of Jesus. Well, you know, he wasn't in a real body. He was just a spirit, and uh, he didn't leave any footprints, and he just moved around. And he was this, you know, because you can't have a body and, and a spirit together because the spirit's good and the body's wicked, so you can't have that. And so he's like, no, that is a false, false Jesus. That is a liar. There's all these different versions that men want to put out there. No, we are to know, and John spells it out for us, we are to know the Jesus of the Bible, 100% man, 100% God, mixed together. That is who it is, not just 
You know, in our day and age, we can say, well, yeah, I think he was God, or I believe he was a man. He was 100% God, 100% man. Do you have the right Jesus? He lived a sinless life. The Jesus who died on the cross, who was innocent and yet died and who suffered. The Jesus who was buried, placed in the tomb, and three days later, he came out alive on the other side. This Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the one that we talk about in the gospel of the nutshell, gospel in a nutshell, this Jesus, this one, do you have him, the true one, not the Gnostic one, not the New Age one, not, not the, the Eastern mysticism one, you know, not any of these other ones, not the scientific ones, not the, all these other false ones, not, none of those. Do you have the Jesus of the Bible? You have him, then you have everlasting life. Him, the true Jesus, this one. The one John's been telling us about. Do you have him and no other? He is the true God. He is eternal life. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords that he shows us in the book of Revelation. This is him. Understand. Know him. Trust him. Have confidence in him. That he is faithful. That he is true. As he comes back on that horse and says that. The faithful and true judge of the world. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Are we in him? And he seems like That seems like a culmination of a book. That seems a crescendo to end on. You know, that Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, the God, eternal life. If you have Him, you have eternal life. But John ends with one more verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Little children, he's, he's used that one for us before in the book. Again, like I said, he's an old man, and he's lived in the faith longer than anybody, so everybody is a new babe in Christ compared to him, and so it's a term of affection. And he's talking about teaching the children, teaching them, instructing them in the way that they should go. He's instructing us. And he says, keep from idols. It kind of ends that way, and it seems kind of odd. At least it strikes me as kind of odd, until I think about it. It's not really odd, because this whole book has been about knowing and defining and trusting the true Jesus Christ. Not some fake Jesus Christ. Not, not, not something that a pretender. Uh, not something that is made up. Not something that is carved. Not something that is an image or a painting or anything else. Not something that is a, a nail or even a cross or anything else. No, about the real Jesus Christ. Do you know who he is? The real Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. Don't be faked. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Know him. Don't fall for a substitute. Beware of idols. The Gnostics were creating an idol. Anything else other than the Bible, or the Jesus of the Bible, is fake, is an idol, can be an idol. We are to know the real Jesus and Him alone. That's why John wrote this book, to expose the Gnostics and the false, uh, false interpretation of Jesus Christ that they said that He was. And we might be tempted to think, well, you know, I can see during their day and age they'd have to have that. You know, they had all these carved images everywhere. But we live in America in 2017. We don't have any idols. Uh, yeah, we do. If you make a Jesus in your mind that is other than the Jesus of the Bible, you've created an idol. If you make one who thinks differently, responds differently, you know, and acts differently to you than the Jesus of the Bible would, you've created an idol in your mind that is not right. So that's why we are to study and to know and, and to see, and that's why John writes these things and, and the other disciples, so that we know the real one. Because we could have an idol. He is warning us against that. He goes, I've started out, I've written this whole book to warn you against an idol that the Gnostics have, and I'm warning you at the end, be careful. Be careful. Stay true. That's why we come together and read his word. That's why we come together um, and study so that we say, this is the truth. This is right. Here's what's going on in the world today. Avoid this one. This is fake. This is false. Let's get back to the true word of God. Um, And there are many false ones in Indiana.
If we make a Jesus in the mind and our mind different than the Bible, it's an idol. If we craft him into something different than the Bible, this portrays him as it's an idol. The Bible tells us covetousness is idolatry. There's America, right? Wanting something, wanting more, desiring something more and above God. The Bible says that's an idol. Idols can be defined like this. With many shapes, many forms. You know, it's not just always a carved wooden or stone image that is out there and wrapped in gold or whatever else. It's something that you love, something that you fear, and something that you trust. Because those are words of worship. If you love something, fear something, and trust something more than God, you are worshiping it. Jesus commands us to love God, love your Lord your God, to fear God. And he commands us to trust God with all our heart. Those are alone for him. Those are for God alone that we are to have those affections for. Anything we long, anytime we long for something apart from God, or fear something more than God, or trust in something other than God, to make us happy or fulfilled or secure might be an idol in our life. There are things we are to love. I'm to love my wife. I'm to love my family. I'm to love my church. But not over God. Not in the wrong place. Not in the wrong priority. And so it could be even good things that if we get in a wrong imbalance, makes it an idol. Satan will pervert anything. Satan will pervert everything. Give him the opportunity. If he's lost us in the battle and he's taken us and we're on, the, we're on God's side now, he'll then try to make us ineffective. He'll make us turn our affections from him to something else to make us ineffective in that way. Uh, like I said, it could be good things, but with the wrong place or the wrong emphasis or the wrong importance put upon it. So we're to beware of the progression of idolatry. Idolatry has a steps of progression. First, it's I desire. I want it. I want that. Are you wanting anything over and above a relationship with God, knowing God and pursuing God? Let's be honest. That creeps in all the time. That's the early stage. And then it turns to I demand it. I demand it. I have to have that. I've got to get that. I deserve that. I work hard for that. You know, I put the time in. I put the effort. I deserve whatever this is. It doesn't even have to be a thing. It could be a clean house. It could be obedient children. It could be whatever. If we put something up and we set it up as a standard that is there, it must be met because it's our desire. You know, because I wanted it. Now I demand it. Because then you turn yourself into a God. You begin to judge. No, here's how it is. I lay down the law and you must appeal to me and what I am doing. You're moving dangerously close to idolatry because you're going to criticize, you're going to nag, nitpick, attack, condemn anyone who's in the way of you getting what it is that you desire and what you demand of. And you're going to judge them and place judgment upon them because the next step is then I punish. If you're not serving my God, if you don't see it the way I do it, you're not doing it the way I want you to, you're going to be punished because idols demand sacrifice. Idols demand sacrifice. If others fail to satisfy your demands or your expectations, a price must be paid and you're going to exact that upon them. Do you have an idol? If you have an idol, idols are usually marked because there's bodies laying around them, sacrifices that have been made. What in your life (laughs) might have bodies laying around it? There's a few questions, they call them x-ray questions to see if you have an idol. What is it that you fear? Is there something that you fear and it has an overwhelming, consuming fear for you more than your fear of God and pleasing Him. It might be an idol. What do you put your trust in to make you happy or to make you secure or to make you feel safe? More than God, that may be an idol. 
Or, my life would be complete if blank. What would you fill in that blank with? That would satisfy me. That would make me happy. That is what I have to have. That might be an idol if you put it in the wrong emphasis. Like I said, these could be good things just with the wrong emphasis on them. If blank isn't met, I feel anxiety or I feel anger. I feel disappointment. I feel depression. I feel like I want to lash out. Whatever that blank might be, if this isn't met, this expectation isn't met, that might be an idol in your life. And it could be as much as, you know, no clothes on the floor. You know, everyone's going to pay for it. You know, anything. Like I said, a clean house, supper at six, a new car, a computer, a fidget spinner. Anything can become an idol if we put a wrong affection on it, if we put it in the wrong place, if it's in the wrong thing. And like I said, some of these could be innocuous. Some of them could be good things. But if we put it and we desire it more above desiring God, that's where it would become an idol in our life. And we punish people by... Think of a younger kid pouting, stomping, throwing a fit. Could be a cold shoulder, dirty looks. You know, cut off communication. You're dead to me. You know, kill you in that way. Uh, you're dead to me. It's a sacrifice. You've been offered on the sacrifice to my idol. I'm not speaking to you. You did not meet the demands of my idol. That may be an idol in your life. Like I said, they could be good things, but what perspective uh, do we have for it? Jesus can destroy the idols in your life. Matter of fact, he comes, he's the king of kings, lord of lords, god of gods, right? First thing we have to do is identify it. Man, I have something that maybe I'm pursuing in the wrong way. It might be, say, it could be a good thing, but just need to get our priorities right. We identify it. You confess it as that, Lord, I think that I might want this more than I should, or I might be putting more emphasis on this than I ought to. And so confess it, ask for forgiveness, and then pursue God. And when you find yourself wanting whatever that was, or pursuing and thinking about that, or seeking to go down that road, say, am I seeking God like that? Keep yourselves in the checks and balance. That's Christianity. A life that is always in a check and balance. Am I doing right? Am I pursuing Him? Why do I want this? Is it that way? You know what? I do that with myself a lot, with my Batman collection. I have a Batman collection. It's there. I like Batman collection. Do I pursue this more than I ought to? Sometimes Yes. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's in the wrong priority. Do I enjoy it? Yes, but can I enjoy it in the right way? And so I have to fight within my mind to make sure I don't put something silly up in front of him. You know, and that's just my example, but it could be anything in that way. It's like, what am I putting in the wrong priority that way? Because if I'm pursuing him, then I'm going to pursue the other. It makes me want to please my wife better. It makes me want to please my family. It makes me want to serve my church more. If I'm pursuing him in that way, it should then flow out that way. And then we should represent the idols that we worship. And Jesus Christ knows how to love and love abundantly. He knows how to pursue and give good gifts and, and seek good things and kind things in a, right, in, in, in a righteous way. And we can too if we're brought into uh, that relationship with him. Um, Ken Sandy has a whole uh, thing you can look up online. Um, on the on idolatry, it's Ken, and it's Sandy, like S A N D E. He's a peacemaker. If you Google that one, and it goes through all the detailed steps of idolatry in your life, it's very helpful uh, and very insightful with all the scripture marks, to scripture verses to go and look and to study and, and to get it around. And I would encourage you to do so if you'd like to find. Let me know. I can send you the link. Uh, but I think you'll find that very very interesting because man, it shows how precariously close we are. And why John would end it that way. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because he wants our devotion, he wants our passion to be towards Christ. Because when it's there, everything else is going to go right. He says, John says, I'm warning you because you are in God's family. And you have these passions and they're right passions that we're to have. We're to seek him, to pursue him. We're to know these things and have confidence. But we're to remember that he is first. 
You should have no other gods before me. Pursue me. And then all the things else come to place. So keep yourself from idols. Stay true to the real Jesus. And he says, you will do a work for Christ. That's where he ends it that way. Little children, just remember this. Let's boil it down. I'll take my whole book and I'll boil it down to this. Make sure you have the real Jesus. Don't have any idols in your life. Pursue him. Pursue him. John, who's seen so much, can boil it down to such a small thing. Make sure you don't have an idol in your life. Uh, I think that's wise. Again, I invite you to come back tonight as we look at some other, some, some wider view things. Uh, just the timing, how it goes. I, I could say I could probably spend six weeks uh, going through all those different things, but with uh, the press of Christmas upon it and Advent, we're going to do that. And so we'll go over it quickly tonight, and I think you'll find it interesting. So I invite you back for that. We'll close in a word of prayer now. Lord, we just thank you. <clears throat> we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your servant John, that you showed so much to. And Lord, for him to be able to boil it down, to help us guard and protect our heart, to put things in the right perspective, to make sure that we are pursuing you and your plan for us. And Lord, and you've given us desires. And many of these things are, are good and right or or neither and don't really matter but they are there but Lord as long as we don't put an overemphasis on it Lord I pray that we would guard our hearts with that I pray that we would go through our mind and we would assure ourselves that we know we have the true Christ that we are trusting in him that we are in him just like Noah was in that ark that we are in Christ that he will safeguard us and protect us from the storms ahead and from the wrath of God and deliver us safely on the other side. And Lord, that we would just guard our lives from idols. As the world is out there painting and portraying Christ in so many different false and perverted ways, Lord, that we would stay to the word, that we would read the word, and we would not listen to what the world is telling us, or even what even other Christians are telling us, but we would say, no, this is the Jesus of the Bible. Him, he is the one that we follow. And Lord, that we would stay true, and that we would stay loyal, and that we would guard and protect who you are. Lord, we thank you for John writing this, this, ad, ad, this challenge to us uh, so that uh, we would not be, go astray. And Lord, that we would stay uh, course correcting all the time, making sure that we are pursuing and after the real Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would portray the real Jesus in our life. And Lord, that we would not want anything to come between us and you. No idols in our life. Lord, but we want to pursue you and serve you. And Lord, that we would show the fruits of the spirits and fruit of the spirit in our life as well. I thank you for these that are here today. I pray that you would disminister them, and as they search their heart, uh, that you'd be with them, reveal anything that needs to be revealed. And Lord, that we would confess that we would come clean before you. Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they, as they try themselves against this, they would see that they would need a Savior. And they need to be in Christ. They need to be protected from that wrath. That they could do so today if they just repent and trust in you and you alone. Nothing else. Not in their righteousness, not in their good works, not in their good deeds, and you alone. And Jesus, I thank you for making salvation available for whoever. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I thank you for that. I thank you for being my Savior. I just pray you speak through hearts and minds through the invitation this morning, and may you be glorified in all we say and do. We pray this in your Son Christ's name. Amen.